Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. My name is Saxon Baird, and I'm with Sam Backer as always. Sam, live music is coming back. Bands can tour now and make money, and the economy of music can get rolling, and everybody can start getting paid, but uh, we can all pay for that pricey merch and the watered-down $10 drinks and like standing behind the like eight-foot guy and not being able to see the band. I can't wait. It's all it's all coming back. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, we've been, we've been talking about it. I've been worried about eight-foot guy. I hope that his pandemic has been okay, that he's, you know, taken some time for himself. That maybe, maybe he's gained a little weight. Maybe he's gained a little weight. You shouldn't lose weight. The eight-foot eight tall guy is always very thin, usually. It de- well, it depends. Indie rock eight-foot tall guy is thin. Metal guy eight-foot tall, he's a, he's a big dude. No, it, it's it's crazy, man. Like, Lollapalooza is back uh, with, a like, a mind-numbing 100,000 people a day. In downtown Chicago, I heard a report from a Rolling Stone writer, and they were like, I'm a little concerned because they were like, I've seen like gate rushing and incredibly long lines and like semi-riot conditions uh, before they were trying to check everyone's vaccination status before entering. And like, how are they going to do this? And the point is that there's too much money on the line, it seems like. And, you know, like, damn the consequences. These big venues, these big shows are too important to too many cities. And a big lobby with a lot of power is just like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, and I'm sure there's, like, a lot of bands that are, like, really eager to get back into playing music and, like, you know, making some money as well. Because, like, in the end, like, you know, that's what a lot of this is about, right? It's about making a living or, like, trying to make, like, somewhat of a living and make money. I don't know if you've you've checked, like, the... We've covered this a little bit about, like, Saber Stages. And, I mean, while some of these really big shows are coming back, um, a lot of the venues, like, still haven't... The smaller indie venues still haven't gotten any of that money from the government. Really? And are still... Yeah, they still... It, that money's not been paid out yet. Um, their website crashed for two months. Hmm. And, like, also, I mean, if you think about, like, the broader infrastructure of touring, that some of these big artists are doing these big festival tours but like the kind of multi-month tours that were the bread and butter of both smaller indie artists and also like the crews that make up the lifeblood of the touring industry those haven't come back yet and so like you know the some of the big artists are getting their big payouts for like playing a couple large shows kind of scattered around the country but i mean i was just i was just doing some research for this and, and like a lot of uh, like road managers and stuff are like I found another gig and until you can offer me three months of tours like three individual tours that make it so I can't get unemployment anymore but that don't give me enough to like support myself I can't come back for that and huge numbers of people so even if parts of the industry are very much looking up and looking like they're they're increasingly just like back to normal um the damage to the industry as a whole has has continued and like uh it, it highlights the kind of um the, the complicated structures and inequalities that that separate like your local indie venue from a live nation owned ticketmaster sold event like Lollapalooza that's a great point and it's also kind of what we're going to be talking about and specifically the price of those tickets and Folks, if you've ever wondered what those fees are all about and how much of that money goes to the band and how much of it goes to the venue 
or Ticketmaster and all these other places, well, you're lucky because we're hitching a caboose to the money train in this episode, as we often do. And in particularly the like maybe sort of monopoly of Ticketmaster and Live Nation. And really, we're just kind of peering behind that curtain of the economy of the live show and how we got to where we are today in regards to how the live mu- music industry really kind of functions. And I think a good place to, to, to jump off is this legendary story in modern music history about those revolutionaries Pearl Jam and how they decided to take on the big bad Ticketmaster for supposedly jacking up the prices of tickets and had all led to a congressional hearing with accusations over Ticketmaster having a monopoly on the live music ticketing market. Jesse James for the spin generation. Pearl Jam played Capitol Hill on Thursday as guitarist Stone Gossard and bassist Jeff Amett were at the House of Representatives to begin three hours of testimony about Ticketmaster, the giant sports and concert ticket agency. A House subcommittee spurred by a complaint Pearl Jam recently filed with the U.S. Justice Department is looking into the way tickets are priced and sold for concerts, sporting events, and other shows. Pearl Jam has accused Ticketmaster of being a monopoly and of using its power to scuttle a summer tour the band had planned with tickets to sell for a relatively low $18. Well, unfortunately, we might we're going to put a little pin in that uh in that uh, in that myth. Uh so let's uh let's let's go back to the heady grunge days of lengthy shorts and flannel shirts and unlaced Doc Martens. It's 1991, 1992, and Pearl Jam has found major success as the uh, premier grunge band, along with uh, the likes of Nirvana and Soundgarden and others. And with that, they've got insane popularity, and there's a high demand to see the band live. And as it happens, they get into a little bit of a, a, a fight with Ticketmaster. And that fight first kicks off when the band wants to basically do a free outdoor concert in its hometown of Seattle. And uh, what they thought was only going to be maybe 5,000 people initially because of uh, the album being so popular swelled to 20,000 to 30,000 people. So they're like, you know what, we're going to ticket this show just to make sure we get a little crowd control, a little safety, a little safety in numbers. And so they turned to Ticketmaster. And Ticketmaster's like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Yeah, no problem. But we want to take a dollar to a dollar fifty off of each ticket. And Pearl Jam's like, excuse me? It's a free show. You want us to pay $30,000, possibly more, to ticket a free show? Hell no. Well, they ended up working it out. But a couple months later, they get into another issue with another show that was supposed to be like a charity show where like, you know, the profits were going to go to some Seattle organization. And basically, to make a long story short... This sets off a sort of elongated fight between Ticketmaster and Pearl Jam that very quickly became the regular topic in the music press. In May, Seattle's super grunge band Pearl Jam went public with its battle against Ticketmaster. At issue, the service charges that Ticketmaster tax on to every seat that they sell. Yeah, and basically, so like from there, Pearl Jam just starts fight like beefing publicly with Ticketmaster, calling them out as kind of like, scam artists basically as saying they're like sucking like like the, the the money and profits from like the kids yeah the, yeah pearl jam has this whole thing about how like hey we were teenagers and like you know we want to make sure that like the teenagers can like make it to the show and afford it because like teenagers don't have a lot of money like that's kind of like the 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 cross that they're like pinning themselves to 
And so Pearl Jam keeps pushing and pushing and they get into different kind of negotiations. There's a lot of he said, he says with uh, like the, the management and Ticketmaster employees. Basically, the upshot is that by 1993, 1994, Pearl Jam kind of says like, just throws up the middle finger to Ticketmaster and the most popular rock band in America attempts to go on tour without Ticketmaster, which means that which means that they can't play in any venue that Ticketmaster tickets, which means that they try to pull together this kind of like weird odds and ends tour. It collapses and the band kind of then testifies to Congress at the behest of Congress and says, like, look, you can't tour without Ticketmaster. This is a monopoly. And I think this story is interesting because it really kind of puts a spotlight on, like, how the industry works and, you know, what goes into a ticket that's base price may be, like, $25, but then, you know, you're actually paying, you know, twenty seven fifty for it. And, you know, so there's a lot of different, like, moving elements to this that I think I kind of want to dive into with you and discuss around this Ticketmaster Pearl Jam dispute because I think it really illustrates like other things we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, so okay, so I'm I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I am not a Pearl Jam fan. I like the first album, Ten. Um, some particularly nice fretless bass work on that bad boy. <laughs> nice. Um, and guess what? This story is going to make you probably also not like Pearl Jam even more. Well, I mean, basically, <laughs> it's funny. So, so, so. Like, yeah, this has kind of come down as kind of a shorthand for, really a shorthand for a lot of tendencies in 90s grunge and 90s alternative rock, right? This idea that, like, Pearl Jam, as this band that had these, like, closely held idealistic beliefs, gets, like, caught up in the vast money machine that is the music industry. Um, They become superstars really quickly. They don't. They don't lose. They don't lose their underground fervor. They don't lose like the the kind of uh, the simple shining like hopes and dreams that that made them the good people that they are. And it's sort of blunt idealism, which like you know has a lot of good intentions, but hasn't really thought a lot about like the systems behind it and like how to actually implement it. Let's take a second and just like like contextualize this even more, right? So like, who is Ticketmaster? And it, it's like obvious Ticketmaster is the place you buy your tickets from but like it's important to remember that buying your tickets online or I guess in that period of time like by phone um or remotely was kind of new right that that is not that for most of the music industry in the 20th century um tickets (laughs) get made physically basically let's say you um have a show you'd print up the tickets for the show and then you'd have to you'd hold them in like a room a box office i guess um those tickets are the only way you can keep track of what you have left in the show if you want to have remote ticketing locations right let's say they're on sale at different record stores or whatever you actually have to get the physical tickets there you have to call the stores if you're running promotion for a concert you have to call the stores and see like do you need more tickets do you have are you not selling your tickets very well like are the tickets selling? There's no data. There's no real understanding of how the system's working. Um, and a lot of tickets go missing all the time, like constantly. Uh, 
and this is this is a, like a classic uh problem like, this is how everyone's like getting a little bit of extra money like uh ticket uh people working at box offices actually apparently but they were like notoriously dicks because they were the richest people in the organization. Like you couldn't, you couldn't talk to them because they actually uh, were like, they didn't care about you because they were selling them on the street for three times the amount of money that the list price of the tickets was for. So Ticketmaster comes along um, in the seventies uh, or ladies, one of the several of kind of these new wave of like electronic ticketing centers and basically yeah, really on the back of like technological changes that really come against to streamline the process no yeah i mean this this is like the first computer revolution right like that there, there starts being the computing power to start not just automating this but have centralized systems and printers so that like the idea that you could print out a ticket at a remote location right and that that ticket would then be that the sale of that ticket would then be like noted in a centralized database. So Ticketmaster kind of uh, increasingly becomes central to the music industry over over the 80s, uh, beats out a couple rivals. And by the early 90s, is kind of the primary organization that deals with ticket sales, remote ticket sales in for music venues. And the key thing here, I think, for Pearl Jam and for this story is that in the course of its rise to success, Ticketmaster did a couple of really crucial things. So its competitor, which was like much better funded and much more established, its older competitors, charged companies for using their technology and took uh, like a slice of the tickets, right? Like 30, 40, 50% of tickets. Ticketmaster says, first off, if we're gonna work with you, we need a guarantee that we're gonna sell 100% of the tickets that's the only way we can make a profit and b and this is the crucial thing that really gets to the crux of the pearl jam dispute Ticketmaster is like they charge you for these computerized ticket selling systems we are going to add a service fee to every ticket and we're going to split that service fee with the venue and the promoters and so sure we'll pass on some charge to the public but what used to be a like a like a cost for you is now uh, a profit center and so we're gonna split the money you're good we're sometimes we're gonna pay you for putting in a ticket master system into your arena and everyone's gonna be hunky-dory and we're gonna handle all your tickets and that is the way this business is gonna run and it really took over the united states ticketing businesses over the decade of the 80s so by the time that pearl jam starts fighting with them they are the undisputed kings of ticketing. And the issue that Pearl Jam has is really with that service fee. So maybe like let's like break down like what their issue is because I think it'll illustrate how the pricing of a ticket like works, which would then allow us to like jump off that diving board and kind of dive into the rest of this discussion about like Ticketmaster and how the live music industry works. Let's say I want to go to a Pearl Jam concert in 1992 in my like flannel and the ticket is uh, whatever. Let's say the base price is $25, but the ticket is $27.50. Like what? Let's break that down. So, okay. So one thing that's changed, I think, between now and then is you wouldn't see like a different, you would just see a $27, $27.50. That's the price of the ticket. Right. It's all in there. It's unclear why it's twenty seven fifty to you. That's what it is. Twenty seven fifty, which is pretty expensive for a ticket then. But remember, it's like that's like 
50 or $60 now. Right. So that's split among a whole bunch of people. Part of it is that, like you said, there's a base price, $25, and then $250 service fee that Ticketmaster is, is charging. And then Ticketmaster is taking usually about half of that service fee, so a buck twenty-five, and then flipping a buck twenty-five back to the venue um, or, or the promoter, depending on who and how that the deal, yeah, depending on the deal of the place. Okay, so now there's twenty-five dollars. Where's that go? That goes to the kind of chain of middlemen that got Pearl Jam to the place, and then Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam doesn't go and just like set up shop in a stadium. <laughs> Pearl Jam has management who are taking a cut of this. Right. That those man that management usually has a, a, a ticketing like an agent who they've contracted with who contacts a promoter and a promoter. There's a bunch of different kinds of promoters, and we're going to talk about a number of different kinds of promoters. And it's really the, the crucial figure in the live music industry, and then wear a lot of different like semi overlapping Venn diagram hats. But let's say. They're a local promotion company that handles most of the live. Their job is to make live events happen. So Pearl Jam wants to play like a place in Seattle. They sign contracts with a promoter who usually has a relationship to this venue. And so basically, the they agree upon a split. Actually, a fairly complicated split between the band and the promoter slash venue. And that part is really variable the promoter slash venue part because sometimes the promoter works for the venue in which case the venue is serving as its own promoter sometimes right. promoters uh, have close relationship with the venues sometimes promoters are like renting venues there's a bunch of different ways right. to figure that out but basically there's a split between the band and the promoter for the ticket income that is not taxes and fees for ticket income right usually there's a minimum so like the band is promised $100,000, and then everything over that is split. And the splits change a lot, right? But let's say like 80-20, where the band makes 80% of the money and the promoter makes 20% of the money. And so that's where that other $25 is going to. So it's like, I could do the math, but let's say five bucks goes to the promoter, 20 bucks goes to the band and their management with the, the manager probably taking another 20% of that. Right, yeah. But I think I think for like for clarity purposes like basically in regards to Ticketmaster like they're only taking that service fee, that 250. And yeah. they are then splitting that. So while the band Exactly. Splitting to, that. Right. And the while so while the band gets the so the 2750 with a base price of $25, while that tw- that's one entire $25 goes to the band now yes the band has to then split that amongst a bunch of different people their managers their roadies like their uh their promoter this is the moment when you really regret having a second guitar right, player. yeah exactly i was about to say and then they had to, and two then they guitar have players to, is expensive and then they have to split it among themselves which pearl jam did have two guitar players and then you know later eddie vetter played guitar as well because we really need three guitars for some reason anyways and so <laughs> that's such that's so petty <laughs> So, 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 Jam's too many guitars. So then, like, bullshit, man. So, just to specifically stick for a minute with the Pearl Jam issue, is that they wanted to keep their tickets around twenty bucks, and they wanted to to keep it at twenty bucks. They wanted Ticketmaster or 25, 25 in our yeah, example. or twenty five in our example. They wanted to keep it at that price, and they wanted Ticketmaster to either like waive that service fee or take less of a service fee. So essentially. 
the what this comes down to is that Pearl Jam didn't necessarily take on the big bad and Ticketmaster. I mean, in some ways it did, and we can talk about that. But essentially, it didn't want to put a dent into the $25 that it was earning. And yes, distributing out to other people, it wanted Ticketmaster to take the, to take the cut. And this is especially complicated. And as like Ticketmaster, <laughs> me and Zaxon had a very strange reaction to doing research on this story for the show, where we both came into it and like we're like texting each other. And we're like... Do, do you agree, do you agree with Ticketmaster? And like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, man. I think yeah. I think Ticketmaster <laughs> may have been right on this one. And I'm like, yeah, I think I can't yeah, believe I'm I saying this. But... And like, so yeah, and then like, so like, you know, folks, if you think about it, like, you know, like you probably if 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 you if you want to just double check what we're saying here, yes, on that twenty seven fifty, Ticketmaster is only taking two dollars and fifty cents of it and then splitting it. But as we'll get into, and it's specifically, wait, 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 specifically, and this is the important part that really makes Pearl Jam's complaints bullshit, is that one of the reasons why Ticketmaster's service fees went up over the '80s and '90s is that bands, superstar bands, best-selling bands, the biggest-selling grunge band of all time, Pearl Jam, whose album Ten was on the Billboard Hot 100 for like three and a half years or something crazy like that. As these bands got bigger, they started demanding a higher and higher percentage of the split between promoters and band. And that starts happening over the 80s, right? So whereas when the business first started, it was, you know, like a 70-30 split. Now it's like it could get as high as 90-10, which means promoters and the venues that they're promoting for often need it started to look elsewhere for money and one of the places they found was they talked to Ticketmaster and basically Master's like we can increase our service fees and we'll split them and we'll pay it back to you so one thing that Pearl Jam could have done was just take less money allow Ticketmaster to charge less because then the promoter would still be getting their payment and reduce the payment fee that way but they were unwilling to compromise on how much they were getting paid they just because it seemed unjust wanted Ticketmaster to give up their money, which, as we know in this podcast, businesses don't tend to do, ever. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's interesting, and that kind of, like, in hindsight, like, years later, you know, decades later now, that has been a complaint, like, and in our research, for example, the drummer of Green Day, Trey Cool, was asked about it, and he said, you know, uh, we, Green Day, we take a lower cut than Pearl Jam. I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying that to anyone in general who's complaining about it, if you don't want tickets being $27, take a lower cut. And then there's also like, you know, uh, there were some anonymous promoters that appeared in some of the research that we've done. And like one quote from them was, the minute that Pearl Jam became a headliner, the band refused to compromise with anybody. Unlike a lot of other acts, Pearl Jam is not greedy, but they could care less about the middleman in the business. And anytime you disagree with them during a negotiation, they just tell you, hey man, it's either my way or the highway. And so like, that's a good point though, is that like, hey, there's more than people than just the ticketing people in the band. There's a lot of other people that like go into getting a band booked, putting i'm putting on the show and they like essentially like make a living off of that either that small service fee or like a small percentage of like what that 25 dollars that we talked about earlier that goes to the band and this is where i um just want to like highlight like a central want to shit on gen x no no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> i want to uh point towards like a central tension that's gonna be running through a lot of this discussion namely that what Pearl Jam was reacting to, I think, and in their 
not quite in their defense, but to kind of maybe feel in their worldview a little bit, right? Which is that this central question of like, what is music worth? Who gets paid? And do they deserve it? It's unclear, A, who should get paid in live music? Like who is like a, a, a just or deserving recipient of this money? And who is a like a pernicious and um, like leech-like middleman? And also, like, centrally, like, what is the appropriate amount of money? What feels like a just amount of money to be paying for a live experience? How much is a live experience worth? And specifically, I think, in in the context of, of rock music, which is, like, the dominant touring music in the United States during this entire period, that, that rock music, whether it's, you know, uh, accurate or inaccurate, and also definitely has, like, real problems this has this like a small d democratic ideology right like everyone should have access to it you listen to it on the radio it's like there's like it's like rock music as a public good provided through private means almost and so there's a real if tickets are too high if it's too hard to get access to that begins to get questioned or begins to come apart that democratic promise and people and the musicians have a real problem with it. And as the live music industry becomes like more and more and more of a business, the tension between like the transcendent experience that people are having at live shows and like the nuts and bolts mechanics of an industry designed to get more and more bands in front of more and more people for more and more money starts to, that tension starts to really, really pull. And I think that that that's kind of what Pearl Jam is thinking, right? Like, in their heads, they're okay with the music business, or they're not quite okay with the music business, but they've kind of accepted it. One hundred percent. Like they're like, and and if you read interviews with them at the time, like they don't, they don't love the whole major label machine. They're that very like Gen X, like we don't want to sell out thing. Right. But they're somehow like, well, I guess can't do anything about that. But somehow, Ticketmaster is seen as a bridge too far. And that the what they're adding to this experience is like somehow like not an actual of value. But what promoters are taking somehow is and it's I think it's like about like yeah. this weird drawing of lines when actually there's a feel yeah that feel like kind of arbitrary and almost like a concession in, in and of themselves like i mean it doesn't like with their complaint you know it does, we're not trying to say that Ticketmaster didn't and still does have an exorbitant control over this industry and yes it was is monopolistic but it's also like such a far cry from having any kind of like imaginative or utopian or alternative vision of like what a live show could be and like how the money can be distributed i mean like you know like this whole thing kind of revolves around like this vague idea of almost like consumer rights as well. And like, if you want to see an, you know, and like you want to see an illustrative example of like the slow erosion of ideas and ideals and how to change society and make it more just and fair, you know, you don't have to look any farther than Pearl Jam, who is essentially in this situation, accepting the system as is maybe like uneasily. I mean, they're famous, they're making money and they like it and like trying to sort of like wield their fame and power to make like little tweaks within this like supposedly unfair system and you know like there's a lot of things that we can branch off from this and i'm sure we'll talk about but it like basically comes down to a general acceptance that this is the way things are run and just working off the premise that like live shows are a commodity that they are central to and that they must reap the most profit of which you know in this hierarchy like 
they do and I think they should, but like Pearl Jam like kind of wanted to also like kind of have their cake and eat it too. Like make sure shows more affordable for their fans, but also like without losing any money on their own. And like, I don't know, it just kind of comes down to this weird issue where it's like, you know, it's like, hey, I want a Pepsi because all there is is Coke and that gives me a stomach ache. Like that's what it kind of comes down to, I feel like. And it just feels like, you know, in comparison to somebody else, that you know, another band and we don't, that, you know, we talked about in a few shows ago that was active at this time, Fugazi, you know, who also like comes up in this book, Ticketmaster, ironically, you know, they were able to find workarounds to this like unfair system and this major label system. Now, maybe it's a little bit unfair to compare them to Fugazi because, you know, as we've acknowledged, you know, Fugazi, you know, came out of this very tight knit and essentially like famous punk scene, you know, and chose artistic independence and control over profit and greater than over like greater fame or distribution of their music. And that's kind of like why they're able to do that. But like, that doesn't like, that doesn't like negate the fact that like Pearl Jam chose profit. You know, and I see like ba- I see Ticketmaster basically like on the same side of the coin as them. They both want to maximize their profits. They both are basically businesses, and they basically they don't want to do it without you know alienating their user base or their fan base. And like they want to be able to like you know make the most money basically. Well, I mean, I do think first off, it's funny though that because of then of the fight, famously uh, of this fight with Ticketmaster and the refusal to play Ticketmaster venues or venues that are being ticketed by Ticketmaster. They do a couple of like weird aborted tours where like they try to organize it themselves and yeah. it's a total disaster because actually right. if you're one of the biggest bands in the country, it is unethical for you to play weird venues that can't handle you because people are gonna get killed. Like Yeah, yeah, and or hurt or end whatever, up, yeah. No, and people end up getting killed. They yeah, there was open, a situation where that happened. They, yeah, they play right. an open a field, a tragic situation where they play an open field show and people get crushed because like it's really, really hard to organize huge amounts of people and you really do want professionals doing it. Um, actually, what's weird though is they refuse to take a lower percentage and like give up anything on their ideals of Ticketmaster. Because of that, they have a failed tour and I guarantee that they lost more money by not touring in the summer of like 1994 yeah four then in 1994 then they would have had they just taken a lower percentage but there is this funny thing and i think this is a a, a more general and maybe this is a nice jumping off point towards our broader discussion which is that so i think a broader problem with the music industry that we've come up when trying to think through the music industry and think through an art form that's so thoroughly connected to an extractive profit making system or set of systems is that you really need to like do your homework and think and figure out like how the whole thing works before you can assign like good guys and bad guys and nine times out of ten or more accurately like 99 times out of 100 there isn't a good guy and a bad guy it's just gonna be these endlessly complicated shades of gray and so i do feel like Everybody wants like a scapegoat or like a boogeyman to point their finger to, and unfortunately, it's a lot more complicated. You know, go go back to our Spotify, you know, episode and <laughs> case in point. Yeah, exactly. So there isn't actually like there are bad guys, and as we kind of dive deeper into the, yeah, this... fuck Daniel Eck, but it's more complicated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So th- there are bad guys, and there are people who are exploiting the system. But the system as a whole is this big, complicated machine. And just that, like, gut check. I don't like that Ticketmaster is doing this. Therefore, they are necessarily bad. 
um, it allows you to like escape blame yourself. It's like, well, the band is good, <laughs> but Ticketmaster is bad. Right. We make music. We're artists, right? Like we're like, even though like, you know, they wanted to maximize their profits. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I will say there is a, you know, in that, in that book, Ticketmaster, there's a, there's a funny quote from Ian McKay where he actually calls up the CEO of Ticketmaster having to deal with him for like a three date show in LA. And there was a, there was a price dispute and Ian called him up directly and worked it out with him. And then like later it was quoted as saying like, I don't think he's a bad guy. Like it's the system that's bad, which is like kind of also what you're saying is that like this, but you're not saying this system's bad you're saying the system's like complicated and it's like hard to just assign blame and everybody's like got their role yeah <laughs> is this pearl jam <laughs> yeah <laughs> many better dyed his hair red <laughs> wait a minute isn't it pearl jam <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's good to see you thinking beavis that guy makes faces like Eddie Vedder. <laughs> no way. Eddie Vedder makes faces like this guy. <laughs> they both make faces like that John Bellucci dude. <laughs> yeah, and he's dead. <laughs> I heard these guys like came first, and Pearl Jam ripped them off. No way, butthead. Pearl Jam came first. Uh, well, they both suck. So, so Sam, like, pulling back a little bit from this Pearl Jam Ticketmaster story, you know, like, I kind of want to dive into, like, some of the, the nitty-gritty ideas, like, behind, like, what the live music industry, like, con- and really is. And, like, you know, because Ticketmaster is really just kind of a player in this big bad system. And, like, there's also, you know... AEG and like Live Nation, which you know Ticketmaster has a, I think was bought out by. Yep, Ticketmaster. Uh, Live Nation owns Ticketmaster. So like maybe let's like let, let, let's like you know pull back a little bit and kind of discuss like how this kind of this monster really works. Yeah. So this is a very complicated system, and it's got a lot of like a local specificity. So everything we're gonna be talking about here is gonna be you know often decided in like a site-by-site way in different cities by different negotiators, by different managers, etc. So basically like when live music and live touring for rock music, right? All of a sudden, baby boomers, huge new market, different venues, different sound requirements. If you think about like famously like the Beatles, you can't hear at Shea Stadium by the Fillmore East days um, by Bill Graham, like Fillmore East, Fillmore West, you've got you can definitely hear the music and all of a sudden you have like custom built arenas and, and it's the whole sense that like rock is a big touring business. But what's funny is that unlike a lot of other parts of the, of the industry, basically what you get with live ticketing is kind of like a very like organic growth out of it's kind of very local roots. So basically a lot of people, whoever was like, the, the the business savviest teenager in every city or like young college student who like dropped out but like figured out that they could start bringing bands in or like who worked at a radio station or whatever they all have these like funny different slight career paths where they're like oh I can make money and then like also sometimes hang out with Led Zeppelin like maybe I should do this for a living um what you kind of get is over time the best of those organizations kind of rise to the top. And what you have by the seventies, by the late seventies, early eighties is kind of like a nation divided into these like little personal fiefdoms, right? Like 
maybe very low level there's promoters who like work in just a city but you kind of have like for the bigger venues you have like someone who does boston someone who does like florida and georgia probably someone who does like parts of the west coast someone who does the midwest someone who does minneapolis a couple people who do new york and these promoters often have relationship long-running relationships with bands and they have long-running relationships with venues some of which they own and the system kind of just keeps building from there. Over the 70s and 80s, they start realizing that a really good way to make money is to build an amphitheater, which is cheaper. And if you own it, you can you don't have to pay rent on the building. I mean, you have to pay rent on the right. building. And you get like and you get like profit. You get you get money from like the concessions or whatever. Yeah. You get money from the concessions. You get money, right? So more and more amphitheaters get built out. And what you kind of have till fairly late is this like weird regional system with services like Ticketmaster providing ticket selling apparatus for more and more and more of them over the 70s and 80s. And things only really start to change in like the mid 80s and early 90s. And what you start getting is like a couple different things. One is that really big bands and promoters for really big bands start organizing tours nationally. So instead of having the Rolling Stones make management, make deals with the promoters in New York, and then also Florida, and then also the West Coast, they realize that it's more efficient to make deal, to have one person who promotes all those shows and makes all those deals, and that then they can organize things more efficiently. So that starts getting a national industry that way. And then also, you start getting um, this company called SFX, which pretty much pretty quickly turns into Live Nation, all one word, which then gets bought by Clear Channel of Clear Channel of like owning all the radio stations' fame, which then gets sold out by Clear Channel to form Live Space Nation, which then buys Ticketmaster to create the current Live Nation Ticketmaster behemoth that <laughs> dominates music today but anyway yeah, so why don't you like, tell me a little bit about like so yeah tell me a little bit about live nation because you know obviously if you're a fan of music and you go to shows you see live nation and you see their logo you know it right i, I but i i don't think a lot of people actually really know like why live nation is such a big deal and like what makes it different from let's say like the first you know three and a half to four decades of like live rock popular music so basically live nation like i said bunch of different names basically but we're just going to call it live nation for sanity's sake basically they start in the kind of heady days of the 90s getting large valuations taking on debt and buying up promoters so they for the first time have the cash and the leverage and the intensity to start taking these regional fiefdoms and consolidating them into one big business. And specifically, like, these are now, by this point, right, these aren't just a promoter who's got deals with venues. These are promoters who own venues. And so starting the late 80s, early 90s, and really accelerating through the 90s, Live Nation starts buying up these promoters and pretty quickly has a really remarkably robust set of, like, 45 amphitheaters across the country. And are able to all of a sudden have like 
a huge percentage of not of the overall tickets sold right because like the, you know the irish bar down the street from you that has like 15 seats counts in the but like of or like the fair or, but like, <laughs> like but like yeah. of the large scale arenas arenas that are big enough for a major rock band to tour in or pop star or pop star they have a increasingly large percentage of those yeah and so that allows them to idea like for i guess in their business ideal a start like demanding that artists play in them if you know if you want to play our venue if you want to play our venue in kansas city you have to play our venue in oakland not its opponent in san francisco um that's one thing b you can start squeezing out agents right you can say we're gonna make a, a a deal directly with a band to take a live nation tour across the whole country which allows you to cut out one slice of middleman and the profits that that middleman came from. And they also allows you to get new kinds of promos, right? So Live Nation can say to Budweiser, we have 50 amphitheaters. Everyone's like summertime, sunshine, good times are gonna be brought to you by Live Nation. They could be brought to you by Budweiser. We can sell against this huge consolidated national audience in a way that like no one else can. Yeah, an independent venue that's independently owned that only has a venue in like, you know, Charlotte, like yeah, they might be able to make a deal with Budweiser, but that deal's gonna be significantly smaller because they're only present you know, Budweiser's only being sold in this one single venue. Opposed to like Live Nation can approach them and be like, This is a national this would be a na- this would be a national sponsorship. Yeah. Now, what's weird about kind of like in a weird way, like it's kind of like sports and sports, like when sports leagues, like the MLB or the NBA, like create like a like a a brand partnership. It's like, well, we got thirty teams across the country, and like it's nationally televised. It's not too. It's not too dissimilar. No, it, like you can kind of look at Live Nation, and I was almost like, for as you could kind of look at Live Nation almost as a sort of sports league in a sense. Yeah, like a sports league for 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 music venues. Yeah, no, I don't think that that's inaccurate at all. I mean, it's similar and similar forces in the sense that like. This is a reproducible part of life. This is not a weird hippies thing anymore. This is like every summer the Eagles are going to go on tour or whatever, and they're going to sell 50,000 tickets across America, more. But it's also important to note that here is where I think the first of this other theme that we're going to be talking about or continue talking about comes out, right? Which is the inefficiency of the live market. So you'd think that, like, they have all these venues, they would be able to basically, like, print money, right? Like, say, like, Rolling Stones, if you don't want, if you want to play America, you got to sign with Live Nation, and you're going to take 50% of the game. And what it turns out is that this is inaccurate. Totally inaccurate. Turns out that if you own... 50 venues anytime there's not a show in those venues you're losing money in fact it's better to have a money losing show for you in that venue so at least you make some money than there is for it to be empty and so in fact it seems like as the live music markets get more consolidated the power of the bands that the very top we're talking about like the elite bands that play in them also becomes 
more powerful because there aren't because there aren't I mean there's a lot of bands that can sell out Madison Square Garden but there are more nights at Madison Square Garden than there are bands that can sell out Madison Square Garden right and you need this is from a friend of the pod Jesse Olson who uh, worked in this uh, industry for for many years and like you need to sell like if a band's playing Madison Square Garden they really should be selling out like you it's a big expensive venue you need it to sell out and so the bands that can sell at Madison Square Garden can kind of write their own ticket Billy Joel sells out Madison Square Garden what like 10 15 times a year Billy Joel can say like I'm gonna play Jones Beach if you don't give me you know, a hundred percent of the gate and you'll make all the money on liquor fees and other stuff. So in fact, what you get is this one of the, the these inefficiencies in the industry that this company takes on all of this debt to buy up all of these stadiums across the country and then isn't able to really make money. In fact, starts getting squeezed by the, the very elite bands for more and more profits, which means that they need to look to other profit centers, which is where we come back to our friend Ticketmaster. Because as we've already discussed, one really good way for a venue to make more money is to sell service fee. Parking is so expensive, right? Hot dogs are so expensive. All the little extras that are above this ticket fee, because the ticket fee, if it goes too high, people freak out. But like, somehow, if you pitch it that the ticket costs $50, but parking costs $15, you don't think of that as a $65 ticket. You think of it as $50 plus parking. But most people, most middle-aged Eagles fans, are going to drive there, right? And they're going to buy a shirt, and they're going to buy, right? And so... That's all of a sudden these venues that are getting squeezed by the by the very elite art by the Eagles start expanding out all these little fees. Right. So as we come back to you know being that it's a complicated system because I think it's easy to call like Live Nation like evil you know but they are and they are contributing to this system but they also are like a part of the system and actually like you know their yearly profit percentage is like something like four to five percent. It's like really really small. No, it's it's crazy. Uh, it's they make bring in income well over a billion dollars and they make like 60 million dollars in profits so a lot of the money that they're bringing in is then paid out in fees in taxes to bans is that this industry that they've built out is really in many ways very very inefficient what's complicated though and this is where they're really they the centralized power can be really um deleterious to the industry as a whole what they have done since their rise to power is they can be anti-competitive with other indie venues, right? If you think about, let's say I'm a medium-sized indie band touring, Ticketmaster, if there's two venues in a place, Ticketmaster is much big. you know, one's, one's Live Nation, one's non-Live Nation. Live Nation can offer me a better deal, undercut the competitor, so that they can gain control because they're part of a large corporate structure and can take losses and further expand out that way, can push other venues out of business, can push other venues in this very competitive way because they're a public company, because they've got access to different kinds of funding. And so even though they're not a very efficient business model for the concert industry as a whole, they can, they're big enough to force out 
other players. Yeah, and it's also I think that like the bigger picture also in all of this and everything that you really explained is that the money really doesn't trickle down that much and it's concentrated amongst a very elite not to use a Bernie, but one percent of like the industry. And that industry is Live Nation, but that's also you know, that one percent is Live Nation, but that one percent is also Billy Joel and like Beyonce. I guess my question is like, you know, what happens if the majority of the money flows to the very elite, very famous few artists, record labels, major venues, and CEOs, then like there really isn't much left over for the artists trying to make, you know, like, I don't know, Balearic noise music or whatever. Like what happens to them? And it just feels like in a way, and it feels like in a way, like, you know, it's kind of a reflection of like the sort of economic, the economic divide that's just continued to grow in this country. And it like seems to also sort of be happening, like just within like the confines of like the live music industry as well. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I, I think it's also useful like to take that and even build on it and think about like the, the temporality of this system, right? We're talking about it as a fairly stable system, this kind of like winner takes all vision of live music, but it really is based around like within the lifespan of a single generation, right? Like the entirety of the live music industry in the U.S., has existed while the Rolling Stones are able to fill a stadium. <laughs> There's never been a modern live music industry in the U.S. when the Rolling Stones like weren't touring, and that's that's how that's how small that's how small of amount of time that it's been. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't been that long, and so there is a thing which is like the question is like whether this is like this kind of winner take all system that's like been that the system has been pushing towards. Like it, it's also like how unsustainable is it? that it's all based around like a model that sort of went out in the 80s 90s in some funny ways like Pearl Jam was one of the last of the rock bands that were set up aesthetically and culturally to like be able to sell out a set of stadium tours forever and now this you know there's a question of like it's not sustainable for the Balearic noise <laughs> band but also it's unclear if it's sustainable for Live Nation that you know like the foo fighters are trying to be like the you know pearl jam even five years later and it's like i guess like foo fighters and weezer can like tour forever but like that's that's the best <laughs> that they got like country bands festivals but so, so what you're suggesting is that like we're not creating a system which is which will create new rolling stones and like new Billy Joel's that can really kind of like sell out on this like massive scale. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a real worry about it. I mean, I think we, we were texting about it before and, and you kind of offered that like the rise of, of festivals is like one way that the music industry can kind of react to that, right? So like maybe like there's a little Palooza or Bonnaroo, but I think a more interesting example is like Rolling Loud, right? Which is a set of hip hop and, and rap groups with a little bit of like a sometimes like a little bit of an EDME <laughs> thing in there and that's like a package of artists none of whom could individually sell out a stadium but who do two to three days in all kinds of major markets and collectively can sell out a stadium the way the rolling stones can i mean part of the reason why you're seeing like these like big concerts is because of the fact that like at you know on a whole, you can make maybe the money that, like, can be made off of, like, you know, a, a week-long uh, Billy Joel concert at, like, you know, at Madison Square Garden. 
Yeah. Because you don't have like the superstar of Billy Joel, but you got all these other bands that are like a couple steps below, but you bring them together, then you can make, make the money. Exactly. Yeah. It's nine o'clock. Well, like maybe like moving on from that and kind of thinking more of it as like a fan and kind of moving away from like the money, the money streams a little bit. Um, you know, it, it does also kind of like there's there's these all these weird sort of elements about it as well, where like the price of the ticket and also the size of the venue and how intimate it is in and, and how you know or or is plays this whole role in I guess like branding or like you know the sort of relationship in which like the band is expressing or the venue is expressing or the label like to the fan, you know, and there's like this whole kind of like weird sort of emotional, like human element to it. Right. Where it's like, if Ty Seagal charges a hundred dollars for a ticket, like that changes my relationship to like me as a fan of his music. Right. And so there's like this weird thing where it's like it's a business. Everybody's trying to extract as much profit. Right. But there is this element where like Bruce Springsteen being like the working class man needs to in some ways take into consideration how much his tickets are and make it at least like somewhat reasonable when he plays, you know, Madison Square Garden. Which is why I think what's what's interesting is like that. Yeah, I I think you're exactly right. And I think there's like a fundamental tension there. one, One of the reasons why we're seeing like if we think about this as a not very good business, right? Uh, and maybe you can get to a second and like th- to try to like throw out some some ideas to try to think about like ways it could be better or different. But if we think about like this centralized, consolidated business, we've even gotten to the fact that starting in in the mid two thousands, Ticketmaster is actually bought by Live Nation. So you have the major ticketing company and the major promoting company under the same roof able to both sell all the tickets and promote the tickets for sale in you know that that further the consolidation is that if you think about this as like a not very efficient not particularly well organized industry that doesn't make that much money there's this constant push for what's like the bleeding edge where can we extract more money in the 90s and early 2000s that was like site fees and parking fees and Uh, service charges and what's been interesting in the last decade of live music that's been as again in the backdrop as we've talked many times like record sales collapse that this is now where artists are making money it's where with the rise of 360 deals where record labels are making money there's been this increased focus on what kind of situations can we get to really really boost the ticket sale because if you can make a more expensive ticket, that's like pure profit. So you get you get really expensive meet and greets. You get deluxe seats that are in- increasingly like those tight, like the floor seats for big stadium shows going for just incredible amounts of money. And you also get all these forays into the resale market. So resale market is, is it's funny. Some of the StubHub, the, invent, the founders of StubHub, invented the term secondary ticket market because they were tired of being called scalpers (laughs) but basically the argument right is that because of what you're saying about with bruce springsteen let's talk about bruce springsteen as a good example because the boss needs to keep like the tickets low ish 
but actual demand for tickets is much higher. Immediately upon the tickets being sold, they're being resold for, you know, three, four, five, six times list price. Yeah, it brings up this whole other issue that, like, you know, like, let's say, like, you know, going back to Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam got it got its wish and, like, sold tickets at, like, a cheap price. Well, somebody's just going to gobble up 100, 100 of those tickets or 1,000 of those tickets and just resell them for, like, 300% markup. Exactly. And so what Ticketmaster has done and what Live Nation slash Ticketmaster has done, as they've been squeezed by these bands, as they're not making that much money in, in other places, and, again, like, it's crazy how little, I mean... Millions and millions of dollars is, is a lot of money, but the the amount of control that this has, these companies have over live music is incredible. And given that they are not, they do not have a printing press for money. They've got like a, they've got a very small percentage of like flow they're diverting, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they realize like, this is all money that's going to waste, What we need to do is find a way to get into the secondary market. And so what you start doing is um, they start creating ticket secondary markets for their tickets that are part of their overall operations. They start buying up companies that operate the secondary market so they can get a second service fee. (laughs) And you get, and they also, I think they also start to charge more for tickets because if they can get closer for these very elite tickets, they can get closer to these the, the secondary resale prices. They, they can kind of claw back some of that money. And that's been like a very major move that a number of these companies have made over the past like decade or so. But it also gets into this thing that I was just, just mentioning earlier about how the price of a ticket does kind of reflect on like the brand of or the relationship of the artist to the fan. And so, for example, like, to her credit, Taylor Swift is trying to keep prices down, but then she runs into the secondary ticket marketing problem. So now she's like doing like loyalty programs <laughs> and like weird like sort of giveaways and stuff like that. But it just it runs into this like once again, it just all comes back. You know, if you just need like the pullback and you just need like a succinct, all encompassing yeah uh, quote here is, is that it's basically just once again an inefficient system that's constantly like running into walls and banging into walls and it's not sustainable. And even when you tr- and even when you try to do something that is, even if you try to do something that is like you know good for the fan, the way the system is built inevitably will make that difficult. As we're illustrating with this, the ticket, the secondary ticket market. Yeah, and I think I think again, like that difficulty goes in a couple of different directions, right? So one is this central tension that we've been talking about over and over on the show, right? Which is like music as a commodity where it's like a saleable thing and whether that's a price of like basically zero which just how much recorded music is currently worth 0.0001 cents or whatever or a hundred bucks for a night which is how much uh someone like bruce springsteen uh maybe can go for there's still like a finite price and then the tension of like how you feel when like you hear bruce play i don't know the rising <laughs> i'm just a joke you like but like that that experience is like people these are sometimes like some of the most important experiences in a person's life it's like a like an incredibly powerful spiritual transcendent experience yeah. and the very act of putting a price on that is difficult so one of the walls what you're saying that the industry runs into is like 
putting a price on that, people don't like it. It's awkward. It creates things like the secondary resale market. On the flip side, I think also you have partially for, for kind of contingent reasons, partially for kind of the problems innate to certain kinds of monopolies, right? Some of the monopolies emerged like naturally from uh, technology, right? There was a couple different, when Ticketmaster emerged, it was hard to do what it was doing. It's still hard to do what it's doing, but less hard arguably than when like you needed to buy right. and organize mainframe computers before Amazon Web Services. Right. But now what Ticketmaster has is long-standing relationships with a number of venues. It has brand name. It has everyone's already put in their credit card information to Ticketmaster. Yeah. And so, like, Ticketmaster was able to gain this kind of monopolistic situation that way. Similarly, like, the venues are built that Live Nation owns, and they they bought them all in the 90s. If you tried to buy all those venues a decade later, it would have cost a lot more money, right? So sometimes this is like how these companies got to their positions. Mm -hmm. But regardless, you do have this funny thing where like another way, it just, it doesn't seem like because of its size, it just doesn't seem like this industry is run that well. And you wonder like if this focus on, this constant focus on extracting the most amount of money per ticket, right. which is how this entire system operates, right? They're constantly, can we get, because any any extra money they can squeeze out of that ticket is profit, pure profit, right? right? Parking, hot dog, anything, right? Whether like, that's a dead end. And you could imagine, like, as everyone's touring all the time, like a more humane, more well-organized system of small venues that right. allows you to go see bands all the time right. you could imagine that a like spreading the money more equitably but you right. could also imagine that maybe like making more money like it's it's always been my question of like movie theaters as an example right yeah like, I, and i've never had a good explanation for this is like tickets to a movie are like 18 bucks but like if tickets were five dollars i'd go to the movies twice a week <laughs> Yeah, and also, like, if, you know, like, maybe, like, your seat was a little bit sticky and, like, there was popcorn on the ground and the screen was smaller, like, you wouldn't give a fuck because it was five bucks, right? Which kind of goes back to the whole thing, like, the Fugazi model. But, you know, it's interesting because artists have made, you know, there's been conceded efforts, like I just mentioned, like, Taylor Swift, and then, like, there's another good example of, like, Garth Brooks, like, you know, his example to keep prices down was just to, like basically like play more shows and basically play as like a yeah, hero like a god yeah, basically continue hero. to extend his dates at, in a city until basically like the demand like i don't want to say run ran out but basically like like slowed to a level he had like a specific level in which he would like 80 percent as soon as he yeah. got 80 percent sell out in a venue they'd add another date right and like i don't have i don't know how that works out for like a scheduling perspective that seems yeah i've I've wondered about that yeah but like you know like but the point once again is that like i mean i don't know how much garth broke tickets are but let's say like they normally if he was going to play one day in your city they'd be 170 if he ends up playing like seven shows in your city then maybe they're only 70 bucks and like maybe your expectations for like how tired and how good garth brooks is on that day like lessens a little bit and you kind of enjoy the show more you know but yeah these are questions these are big questions that like 
like, you know, I think that that oftentimes get overlooked and like failed to get asked when when discussing, you know, this big behemoth that we've tried to wrestle in this show. And, uh, you know, like it's something that we're going to continue to talk about on like future episodes and continue to try to like think through. Yeah. And and it, and I think it, it's it's really important because in many ways, it's one of the clearest, most lived example of the music industry and how it touches people li- people's yeah. lives. I know that like I and many people, many fans, like some of their favorite and most important musical experiences are based around these venues. And yeah. and I just think that, that they're to kind of go back to the to the beginning of the show, take a full circle a little bit. Like there's real stakes here, right? That one thing that these companies have done, Live Nation in particular, m- recent years has been kind of pushing down the food chain increasingly and buying up yeah. like hip legendary local venues and as yeah middle tier like five thousand people maybe or like even like maybe like two thousand people like capacity yeah yeah and as as all the forces that we've taught you know the, the the kind of general economic conditions of this country continue right like raising real estate prices in cities that make it harder for indie venues um right not a great social safety net as we all know um raising right. housing costs for musicians that makes it harder for them to like St- stagnant, stagnant, stagnant minimum, minimum wages, wage, right? all, all yeah. of these things make right. it easy, make it more and more precarious for these small venues to survive and, and small and small touring artists and small touring artists survive. And so that as these huge monopolistic companies push further and further and further into this music industry, you do wonder whether like, raises questions about like the sustainability of what's become like the only real profit center. And the question is like, how do you change it? And the question is like, how do you create a potentially like more livable system for, for everyone, including a more diverse ecosystem of middlemen. And I do think that that's one of the funny things that I think we could go back to the Pearl Jam example and think about for a second. Right. Which is that, if you have a, a kind of like black and white analysis of the music industry where like there's good artists and then there's like soul sucking promoters, actually what you get then is kind of a not very clearly thought through analysis of the, the political economy of the system. You get kind of like knee jerk reactions and then you don't exactly. necessarily see the potential differences between live nation dominated local scenes and a more diverse more healthy ecosystem and so thinking about like okay live music as important live music as a commodity but also like live music as a as a as a economy that a whole but takes a whole bunch of different figures to make happen in a good way all those figures also (laughs) are part of the music industry and important and then like thinking about like well which of those figures do we want and do we want them all to be kind of outsourced to like a handful of global companies? It's like just something for us all to keep our eyes on, I feel like. Yeah, and also like what happens when when you think about it in that very sort of black and white way is that you get you forget about like all the middlemen as you were saying or the people that even just kind of like make a living working these venues like say the sound guy, <laughs> the the soundboard guy or like the bartenders or like the roadies or like things like that, you know, those, like those, they have, they're all kind of like, you know, holding their hands out, getting a trickle of this money. And 
we have to take that in consideration too and like their livelihood as well and you you tend to like overlook that when you just strictly like look at it in this sort of like black and white way yeah and i do think that like that's one of the real dangers of these huge companies right which is that that ecosystem we just described maybe is yeah. like less efficient from any specific profit center and like let's not overstate this right the head of these companies make an extraordinary amount of money in 2019 the head of live nation name him in 2019 michael rapineau who's the head of live nation ceo of of live nation was paid something like 15 million dollars for his services so these people and Mick Jagger, they made a, make a ton of money off this, but these like broader ecosystems that spread it a little more, are more complicated, spread it more equitably and more sustainably, I think are healthier. I think are going to be like better for people, are going to be better for the art scene, or better for the arts. And like, it just you do worry that like as these things are centralized, and there's again like a real threat that this could get totally centralized out of existence, almost like you're going to get that push towards like more and more profit per ticket because in some ways that's easier to handle and you lose this like the diversity of like a healthy cultural economy yeah and so and i think that you start by understanding the system a little more clearly which we hope we illuminated on in this program and you know by understanding it and thinking it through and thinking about it more critically than maybe ideas of like better ways to run that system even if it's on a local level uh, can hopefully emerge, uh, but I think we'll, we'll 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 tie a bow on the show there because uh, we were gonna we're gonna definitely gonna be talking about this a lot more in the coming year, and it's gonna come up in many different ways. So, thanks again for listening. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter, moneyfornothing.substack.com. If you got any questions, you can hit us with an email, and that email moneyfornothingpodcast at gmail.com. Music by Bird Language, as always. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Yeah.